This is Ool Radio. I'm Jason Snell, and I'm here with Stephen Coyle, who spoke to us yesterday about a very strange programming language. Yeah, one of the strangest, I think. Um, so it's, it's a really old one, which I think is the main reason for the, the strangeness. It has kind of inherited 500 years of uh, Croft and different developers. Uh, well, I say developers. Uh, modifications and tweaks so yeah it's I, I have to admit i figured out what you were talking about fairly quickly but you did put <laughs> composer up on your yeah, bio yeah. that was the that was the clue that clued me in right. but i did turn to i think james thompson next to me and i elbowed him and i, I said he's talking about music notation <laughs> yeah that's what it is i could tell mike suggested that i, I scrub composer from yeah. the first slide i think that's a good idea because um I only had the idea to do the kind of reveal format about uh, last week, so it, I had made some slides, and then I kind of left one little breadcrumb that kind of indicated it a little mm-hmm. bit sooner. But um, yeah, it, it felt like an interesting way to, to frame the, the, the discussion. I like, I, I, I really love the concept. I love the concept that we think of programming and we think of uh, computer languages and we think of old programming languages and we think of, I don't know, COBOL or Fortran or mm-hmm. filling out punch cards or things mm-hmm. like that. And, you know, our, as people, our attempts to build rule sets and create notation systems and have... I. After you were done talking, I said, uh, I said to the people at my table, you know, there are even like control loop structures in music notation, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it is, you know, our, so our attempts as people to get this stuff written down, not just thoughts, but, but, um, steps in a process go mm-hmm. back far beyond the computer era. And th- that's what I really found delightful about talking, uh, you talking mm-hmm. a- about it from a music perspective, because it's, it's a lot of the same issues, a lot of the same problems as with programming. Yeah. I mean, the, you have the control flow statements, like, uh, originally the main reason for this was just to save paper back when people had to write the music by hand, it was easier to have, you know, you have little instructions like play the section again and mm-hmm. the second time make some subtle changes. So you kind of just add in your diffs to the second version and that way you don't <laughs> have to write the whole thing again. Right. And then it's interesting, um, actually, I've been watching Westworld recently and uh, they have kind of a player piano motif running through. Yes. But the player piano role is kind of one of the very early uh, sort of conventional programming languages. You know, it was the the precur- precursor to punch card. I think some of the like early punch card computers kind of conceptually borrowed some of the mechanics and the ideas of, of piano roll to actually program player pianos. So it is interesting that it's it's very much achieve, trying to achieve the same the same goals. I started to wonder to myself, like not knowing any of the history of music notation, I started to wonder and and apply things from computers to music notation and think like, I wonder if there were standards bodies and standards movements where people tried to, people tried to get the, the, the sheet music to be closer to uh, a standard because I imagine it probably started being all over the place and then yeah. people tried to push it together and had some success, but there's still some issues with it. Yeah. I mean, we're still very much waiting for the swift of music <laughs> notation, unfortunately. Um, I mean, it's, it's kind of inherited little things that go back over a thousand years um, from the Middle Ages. And I mean, the, the logical kind of premise of it is just basically that as you read left to right, as the little dots go upwards, the notes get higher, like the pitch mm-hmm. gets higher. As they go downwards, the pitch gets lower. And as you kind of imagine a scan line moving across the 
the dots, you kind of play the notes as you hit upon one as the scan line moves across. That That's the kind of conceptual backbone. And it, it did become quite standardized in the sort of 17th, 18th and 19th century. That's whenever the, the largest body of... Uh, you know, music that people can comfortably read today if you can read music notation emerged. So the likes of Bach, Beethoven, Mozart and the, the big heavy hitters mm-hmm. of, the, of the music world. Uh, but it's interesting that it's actually diversified a lot more as time has gone on as opposed to converging. Part of the reason because uh, there's been such a shift towards experimentation and, and pushing the limits of what music is and how we conceive of music in the 20th century that innovation happened so fast and so across the world that people came up with similar ideas and notated them in different ways mm. and so as opposed to getting you'd think like like modern like spoken languages things did start to converge over time and became a little bit more standardized whereas music feels like it's done the opposite so i often um i try to study a lot of modern scores to keep abreast of the changes and the different things that are written because you want to, you, you want to try and use someone else's notation if you try to do something interesting. So you kind of want to find out has someone done this before? How did they notate it? And can I use that rather than reinventing the wheel? Right. But it's impossible to keep up with everything, and some people just don't really care about that, and they just come up with their own notation. And so their uh, people who follow their school of composition will end up using their notation. Other people will use different notation. So you end up with this huge array of you know different ways of writing the same thing the same thing written in different ways uh, or whatever the inverse of that is. And so it's, it's gone the opposite direction. And then we're, like I said, as I said, we're still waiting for the, the kind of swift. I think there's so much friction because people, there's a huge time investment required to get familiar with the language that nobody wants to relearn something from the ground up. And uh, it's also easy because, I, I mean, I've been reading this kind of notation for 15 years. And so I feel like I can read it just fine now enough to get by at least and so the pressure once you've done that gets very low to try and reinvent it i suppose it's to draw another parallel to programming the way you describe different people it's not necessarily different people writing different programming languages so much as you may know this programming language but there are many different ways to write within it and Mm -hmm you know, then you find something that does it completely differently or maybe the code isn't commented and so you don't yes. really understand what they were doing there and you have to try to make sense of it. But mm-hmm. but it's all, in the end, we're all trying to symbolize something very different by... Yeah. I, I, I'm fascinated by that. The other parallel that I really loved that you made on stage was about hardware requirements. One of the things that mm-hmm. you talked about is... is um, I just love the parallel that you write uh, you write a badly optimized program for an iPhone seven, and it barely it runs, but you're using a hundred percent of the resources to do it, and then you try to put that on an iPhone six, and it's going to struggle. And you you made a parallel between I guess you you were commissioned to write something that you thought was going to be for you and several other people for professional musicians Mm -hmm. and it ended up being student musicians Mm -hmm. and the uh, many of the composers they were not optimizing for that kind of hardware the student musician it was a low powered sort of yeah exactly and they were they were great students but they just the ceiling of difficulty was much much lower and it's not a problem to write that write with that in mind if you know what you're writing for but if you're fooled into thinking you have this kind of extra uh, level of uh, resources you can take advantage of and you use it all it as you say it, it doesn't run so well whenever you kind of lower the the abilities that you have it's interesting like uh, when you're writing for a particular ensemble and you know the requirements I still tend to aim a little bit lower 
maybe this is my programmer's instinct helping as well, but <laughs> you don't want to write something that is pushing the limits of the, of what a performer can do, especially like I'm a young composer and I'm not hugely established yet. And if you hand an ensemble a piece and it's this horrifically complicated score and it's going to take them months of rehearsal time, just with the pressures of trying to get concerts learned and repertoire, uh, repertoire prepared, nobody wants to do that. So simplicity is often a good way of ensuring both that lots of people can play it, but that the people who find it easy will want to play it and it's going to be more likely to succeed. And I guess the parallel is if you have a program that that's so light and resource light and doesn't use um, your... Even though you have resources available, it's going to have positive impacts on your battery life and such, and everyone's going to want to use it, even though in theory you could be using something much higher power and much more advanced but you're kind of unnecessarily using resources whenever uh, you could be getting away with something a lot lighter. As a composer, too, I mean, this is similar to what you said, the idea of compatibility that um, you you don't want to write something that's unplayable because mm-hmm. you actually, the goal here is to have it be played, perhaps played by, if you not only if you have a commission, by wherever that's going to be done, but you want it to be playable by other be yeah. portable to other mm-hmm. hardware <laughs> exactly yeah. and and not you know you could make something that's absolutely brilliant but if nobody can play it or very few people can play it it's much less likely to ever ever be yeah. popular yeah exactly just again the last thing i want to do is write some pieces that'll look great on paper and sit on a desk forever right. because nobody can can invest the time that it takes uh one of uh a lecturer at my university talked before about like the ethics of writing complicated pieces and you basically if you know a person has to play your piece and then you write something that takes 10 hours of practice a day to get learned you're kind of you, you do have an ethical quandary here of is it right for you to demand so much of this person's time when they could be doing learning other pieces they could be spending it with their family they could be doing lots of other things so uh, the pressure to make it easier on the performer is kind of twofold or threefold in these different facets that you want to not make demands that are unfair on the on the performer. I think I also speak as a as a pianist. I really greatly appreciate stuff that's easy to read and doesn't mm-hmm. require too much practice time. So um, I try to keep those considerations in mind. So you have an app that you're working on. Yes, I tell, do. Tell me about that a little bit. It's rhythm. It's it's teaching people about rhythm, which I, I, I liked when you said on stage that this is one of the harder concepts because it was always in my in my piano lessons and my all my music lessons as a kid, I always had trouble understanding what you know how how rhythm worked and, mm-hmm. and how to measure it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I think like, t- uh, time in music works differently to the time that we're used to normally. You know, you get used to these ideas of a second and a minute, and they have these fixed durations. Whereas music notation, uh, by its definition, it employs these flexible durations. You know, the same note might last less time in one piece than another. So already it gets off to a tricky start. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I find while teaching piano that explaining this to kids was tricky because you can either get them to learn by repetition. So you play something and get them to play it back. And if they make a mistake, you kind of keep showing them until it works. But it's just basically learning by attrition. You're not teaching them to interpret the symbols. Right. So this was my spark of inspiration to try and figure out a better way. And I felt that you need something that can just interact in real time with the person and give them direct feedback on what they're doing. Because if you interrupt the rhythm, you've destroyed it you can't you can't go back and fix a rhythm because it's a temporal thing it just it evaporates once you're finished with it so my idea was to create this um app to help teach every aspect of music but particularly focusing on rhythm 
And because I'd never programmed before January, I kind of realized the largeness of the task <laughs> I had right, ahead of me. Uh, so I planned it out, and I had to figure out some you know modularized version that I could work on to kind of make it an achievable task for for the time being. So I ended up making a gamified rhythm game or gamified rhythm app, uh, which focuses on just the rhythm aspect purely. And it's also it's much more targeted at kind of casual gamers than the educational version will ultimately be. But the idea basically is that um, it gives you a song, a little excerpt of a song, and you have to press a little button in the rhythm. So it takes care of the notes for you. So, for example, if it was um, happy birthday, you would go, you would tap the button in the same rhythm that you would say the words happy birthday. And then the better you do it, the more points you get. So I kind of developed a little rhythm recognition engine that would take into consideration things like... uh, you know, you could play a piece twice as fast or twice as slow, and it's still technically correct because of the fact that rhythm is relative. Mm-hmm. It has to consider that, okay, people don't have this perfect idea of how long a second is or how long a beat lasts, so you've got to be flexible. And so it was, it was interesting. The, the game version of it helped me conceptualize what I needed to solve to make this rhythm recognition engine, which will then go on to be like a module in, mm. the, in the complete app. So tapped is the the current uh, implementation of that. And is it out? Yes, it's out. it came out in, the, uh, I think, June on the App Store. So right. I've kind of gone through a couple of um, versions. It's been very much a kind of uh, experience of getting something from an idea right to a shipping product because it was something I'd never... If you were learning done. in January and you have an app in the App Store in June, that's pretty good. Uh, yeah, I was quite happy with it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's not perfect. I'm, I'm currently testing out quite a big redesign. Actually, David's talk yesterday was really uh, hit close to what I was thinking of at, at this time as well because I've um, currently it's basically free with in-app purchases. And while I'm quite happy with what, how it's been doing so far, I've noticed that you know the purchases all come from about 4% of the users. Mm-hmm. So it means 96% of people are only playing the first kind of couple of free um, aspects of it, and then everybody else doesn't get to experience it. So I'm currently going to basically take his advice. And I've, I've spent the last couple of weeks kind of reorganizing it so that you can get the entire app for free. And then there are other ways that it's monetized. Mm-hmm. But I think one of the things that I really have felt this app has been useful for mm-hmm. is just... Uh, it's good having these conceptual ideas and these goals in mind, but until you actually start interacting with people and seeing how they use the app, it you know, it's not obvious where you can optimize things and how you can change things. And so seeing how people use the app and getting feedback from them has been, I think, will make the, the next app all the better for it. So where can people find you on the Internet if they want to know more about what you do? Um, I'm on Twitter. Um, I'm at Stephen Coyle, and that's Stephen with a P-H, and Coyle is C-O-Y-L-E. And I also have a website, uh, stephencoyle.net, and I kind of post everything that I, that I work on up there. Great. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you very much, Jason. It's been great to talk to you. Mm-hmm.